Alright students, yesterday we had our first lecture on the causes of the Trojan War, the Apollodorus. Today we're going to review that a little bit, we're going to move forward just a tiny little bit, and then we're going to read the first seven lines of the Iliad together, the so-called prologue or proem. In fact, in those seven lines, the poet, Homer, will tell you exactly what the Iliad is all about. Yes, yes he will. Alright, let's recall yesterday. Yesterday, we learned about Eris. Eris is a goddess of discord, of conflict, of fighting. In fact, in some accounts, she's called Ingalios, and she is the twin sister of Ares, who is himself also a god of war and violence. Recall that she was not invited to a very special wedding. It was the wedding of Peleus and Thetis. There was something curious about this wedding, though. It wasn't uh, normal in the traditional sense. What was curious about it? Who can recall? Yes? Very good. It was between a goddess and a male human, which is sort of rare. Often it's male gods, females. Uh, you'll see that, uh, female humans, you'll see that uh, quite a bit when it comes to Zeus and his liaisons. He has something like over a hundred illegitimate children in Greek mythology, which means that he has a lot of children outside of wedlock, uh, which means he's a cheater, essentially. He's a cheater. So this is sort of interesting. This is weird. And the reason why... Thetis was married to a mortal man. Does anybody recall what that reason was? Yes? Because any son of Thetis would be greater than his father. That's right. And why would a god, especially Zeus, who had defeated his father to become king of the gods, not want his son to be stronger than he was? Because then he would defeat him. Because then, potentially, his son would rise up and defeat him in the same way that he defeated his father. And that's not something that he necessarily wants. Because he's not a human. As humans, we care about our children because we're going to what? We'll die at some point, right? So we want our kids to have better lives than we do. But what if you were a god and you would live forever in eternal bliss? Would you ever want that to end? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, you know, eternal bliss, probably the best thing you can possibly imagine. All right, in any case, this goddess Eris, who was not invited to this very special wedding decided to take her revenge. How did she do it? Who can recall? She went to a very specific garden and got something very particular off a very particular tree. Does anybody recall what was picked from this tree? Not the sort of thing you usually see on trees. Yes? Uh, a golden apple. A golden apple. You see apples every now and then, though we don't have a lot of apples around here. But it was a golden apple. Does anybody recall what was inscribed on the golden apple? Yes? Um, like to the fairest? To the fairest. The Snow White. Yes, Kalisti. To the fairest. To the most beautiful. And so which three goddesses were the ones who competed in the final round for this apple? Yes. Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite. Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite. Every syllable you pronounce with these Greek names. Even if it doesn't look like it. Very good. And then each and every one of them they didn't want to just win based on their merits. What is it that they each offered to Paris, a shepherd and son of Priam, king of Troy, in order to get him to choose them? In the green. Um, Hera offered political power. Hera offered political power, the power to rule. Okay, what did Athena offer? Yes? War victories. War victories, very important in a time when people go to war almost every year of their lives. In fact, those people 
who are there at the Trojan War, something you might not know yet is it, it is a 10-year-long war. So every day of their lives, there are days that they take off in order to bury bodies, because if you don't bury the bodies, plague will break out and then everybody dies. Uh, but most days, they are going to be fighting for 10 years long, which is like two high schools plus two, which is a long time to spend fighting. In any case, in any case, Athena offered war victory. What is it that Aphrodite offered? Yes? Ah, the most beautiful woman on earth. And Paris misinterprets that. Who is it that he thinks he will get the opportunity to marry? Yes? Aphrodite. Aphrodite herself. And yet, is she a mortal woman living on earth? No, she is a celestial goddess who lives on Olympus. Olympus is a giant mountain, or just a mountain, from Greece. And at the top was the idea where the gods would live. And you might say, that's sort of a funny idea. And I'd say, well, have you ever seen the idea that like a god lives on a cloud? The idea is that they are what? Relative to you. Yes? Higher. Higher. Above you. Right. Something that you look up to. We still use that sort of language. When somebody say higher rank or better than us in some sort of ability. Say like you're like a JV baseball player and you see a professional baseball player, you might look up to them. Not just because they're taller than you. They might not be this point, but because of their superior skill. Alright, very good. Nice picture of foppish Paris there. Alright, good, good, good. We talked about Zeus having to make the decision, but it was a lose-lose win for him, because somebody's going to be happy with him, one of his daughters or wife, but two people will be unhappy with him, one of his daughters and probably his wife, and so he didn't want to make that decision. Paris made that decision, and who did he choose? He chose Aphrodite. Yes. Good. Ah yes, we talked about a couple of the problems. What are, uh, what are, what is one of the two major problems with Paris choosing Helen, or excuse me, choosing the most beautiful woman in the world, who happens to be Helen, in the back? Helen's already married to Menelaus, who's the king of Sparta, which uh, means that he is one of the kings on Argos, which means one of the Greek nation-states. Well, Greece, uh, at this time, there is no Greece, they're not unified, so it's like, it would be like if we had a bunch of states together and we all spoke the same language, but we weren't technically the same nation. So it's like Arizona, New Mexico, and California. We were all our own countries, but we were very friendly. That was the idea of Greece back then. Well, Menelaus was around, uh, I wouldn't say exactly the second most powerful man, but he was one of the more powerful lords of the place we now call Greece. Well, his brother, Agamemnon, was the most powerful lord. And the second that some foreign prince named Paris steals his brother's wife, he rouses troops from everywhere in Greece. In fact, he says he has a good argument. He says, this attack was not an attack on Menelaus. It was an attack on us and our way of life and even on the gods. Because there's a word I'll just use once here, but then I'll use it probably thousands more times during the course of the year. The Greeks, I'll call them the Achaeans because that's what Homer will often call them. He'll call them the Achaeans, the Argives, and the Danaeans. They believed more than anything. Their holiest bond between people was called the Xenia. It was based on the word Xenos, which means stranger and guest. The Xenia was that when somebody comes to your home, you treat them appropriately. And when you go to someone's home, you act appropriately. Perhaps 
Your mom or dad has uh, really reiterated this with you if you were ever going to spend the night at somebody else's house. When you are a house guest somewhere, you will behave better than even in your own house. And that's the idea. You don't steal. You don't do terrible things like, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know, uh, I don't, you can probably imagine terrible things better than I do. You don't steal things from them. You don't defile their home. Uh, and you don't make a wreck of things. In any case, the idea was that when Paris stole Agamemnon, or excuse me, Par Menelaus' wife, Helen, he was making an attack on one of the most important customs of the Achaeans, which was to treat your host right and to treat your guests right. And so Agamemnon made the argument that every single Greek person, every single Achaean person had been attacked by this. And they accepted it. And they sailed on to Troy, and that is where we will start the book today. Oh yes, there was one other question I wanted to ask. What is the other problem with Paris marrying a new woman? Yes? He's already married. He's already married to a nymph. What was her name? Does anybody remember? It looks very weird. Yes? Enone. Enone. Whenever you see two vowels together, this is called diphthong in Greek, you just pronounce the second one. So it looks like oenone. 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 It's enone. Enone. Very good. Very good. Very good. Very good. All right. All right. What do I want to say now? Hmm. I want you to write this. Good. This is uh, what I was saying. So, after Helen takes, or Helen is taken by Paris, and I'll bring up one issue there. It is unclear to us from the works of Homer whether Helen intended to go with Paris, whether she chose to, or whether she was forced to. Now, there are reasons why uh, this is a hard question to answer. On the one hand, we know that it is the case that Aphrodite said explicitly that she would give the most beautiful woman in the world to Paris, which seems like the choice is not in Helen's hands. But there is an issue in Homer called double determination, where sometimes a god chooses for a mortal to do something, and the mortal person chooses to do it at the same time. And the question might be, who caused the person to do the thing they did? And that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, another problem, and this is something I don't need you to know for tomorrow, but I will just tell you because it's interesting, is that Helen's father, Tyndarius, supposedly was cursed to have adulterous daughters. That means daughters who will cheat on their husbands. In fact, one of his daughters, who is not Helen, and is technically her half-sister, uh, is named Clytemestra. Clytemestra is the wife of Agamemnon. Agamemnon is the brother of Menelaus, who is married to Helen. And so it looks like both Menelaus and Agamemnon will have adulterous, cheating wives. Uh, which, which one of them is worse is an interesting question that we might have to think about during the seminar late in the semester. Um, in any case, all I'm trying to say is that we do not know whether it was Helen who chose to leave her infant daughter Hermione and to go with Paris forced by or 
inspired by her own lust or desire for Paris, or whether it was the goddess herself who, uh, who commanded this. Uh, an additional wrinkle, just to add to that, is that sometimes Aphrodite is herself interpreted as lust. And so if Helen feels lust, that means desire for somebody, is that Aphrodite working through her? Hmm. In any case, I don't want to get too deep into that question yet. So, Helen, she leaves, willingly or not. Agamemnon, as I said earlier, who is the brother of Menelaus and the head of the largest contingent of Greeks, he'll lead a hundred ships out of a thousand, that means one-tenth of them. He leads an expedition to Troy. He enlists all the former suitors of Helen. She very famously, when her father Tyndarius opened her up to the market when she was around 14, 14 was around the age that he would get married in these ancient times. Um, so around, around high school age, around high school age, um, supposedly most of the Greek heroes that exist came to try and uh, win her hand. But the person who ended up winning was Menelaus. All the other suitors, because Tyndarius was afraid that they would someday rise up against his choice and kill Helen and her new husband, had them all promise on the advice of a character you'll soon learn about named Odysseus, who is very crafty, cunning, and intelligent, made all the suitors promise forever to protect Helen and her husband. And so they all just said yes, assuming that all they had to do was not kill Helen and her husband. Not that hard a thing to do. You just move on with your life. That said, when Helen gets abducted and taken to another country, what do you have to do to protect her? Well, you have to do a little bit more than just not kill her. You have to go fight for her. And so these people were bound, honor bound, to do so. And they did. And they did. And so a thousand ships, it's technically slightly more, set sail to Troy to collect Helen back. What ensues is a ten-year-long war. Now, something very interesting and probably annoying to you is this. You would imagine that the Iliad would begin where in this war? Right at the beginning. Right. Makes perfect sense. And yet, you would be totally wrong to think that. The Iliad will actually begin ten years into the ten-year-long war. Very close to the end of it. And then, when I say that, you probably assume that you're going to get to see the what of the war? The end of it. Well, you would be wrong to assume that, too. The Iliad is a small episode within the war. It's apparently very, very meaningful. Perhaps the most interesting part of it. Perhaps that tells you something about life, that you have ten years of things going on and then focus on three major weeks of it. I guess there are focal points in life. In any case, the Iliad does not begin at the beginning of the Trojan War, and it will not end at the end of it. It is a small part near the end of it. And so, keep that in mind, because I might ask a question about that tomorrow. All right. And that, in the story of parts of that war is told in the Iliad, we will then, after we read the Iliad, read the Odyssey, which will be the story of uh, essentially how the people from the Iliad who are still alive, not everybody will survive, it's war after all, uh, get home. And what it is they did to make their homecomings so difficult. Uh, very difficult. That said, I will tell you about the beginning of the Trojan War. I will tell you also about the end of the Trojan War. That information will not be denied to you, but Homer will not tell it to you. All right. This is a nice, pretty picture. Okay, yeah, I just want to show you this very quickly. I, I, we don't do a ton of geography in here, but this is Asia 
this is the Greek peninsula, and this is the Italian peninsula. I think I've got that. I think I've got that right here. Yes, good. Good, 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 good. Where Troy is, is very close to where Istanbul or Constantinople was, the seat of the Byzantine Empire in the Middle Ages, the Western Roman Empire. Mount Olympus up here on Greece, that's the mountain that was essentially like heaven for the Greek Olympians. Um, Ithaca here, all the way over this tiny little craggy island, that's where Odysseus is from, that crafty guy I told you about. Sparta, right here, that's where, who's the king of Sparta, who remembers this? Yes? Menelaus. Menelaus, very good. And then Crete, this little island over here. Crete is supposedly where uh, Greek civilization first began. In fact, they have a very famous mythical king named King Minos. You'll actually see again in the Inferno next year with a snake tail, judging, judging the, the damned in the Inferno. And um, very interesting. He was himself also... Uh, a son of Zeus, and had kind of a very interesting son. Did any of you know who the very famous son of Minos was? It was technically a stepson. Yes? The Minotaur. Very good. Which was a half-bull, half-man abomination, by some accounts. Alright. Alright. Good, 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 good. Alright, what do I want? I want us to open our books now. Alright, let's open our books. Two books, or to book one which is about 60 pages in. It is technically, sorry, page 75. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the introductory material. You don't really need to know. You don't need to read the introduction. I, I will show you, we'll use the maps every now and then, not that much, um, because it's just not that useful for the purpose of this course. I want us all to be right where it says book one. Notice something interesting. Notice that small space between the first seven lines and the remainder. That is a choice, an intelligent choice, I would say, made by the editor. In the original document, so a couple things you just might want to know are this. Homer did not, we think, write originally. He spoke, he sang. He sang to a harp-like instrument called the lyre. And supposedly, apparently, he memorized all 15,000 lines of this poem. And he's not the only one. In fact, some people say that there was no Homer, that there were a bunch of different poets who all sang similar songs, and then what has come down to us is sort of a mixture of all of those songs. Second thing is this. When the poem was first written down, it was not written on paper, nor was it written in English. It was written on papyrus, scrolls. Uh, and it was written in ancient Greek. Something interesting about ancient Greek that might make it hard to understand for you. There's no punctuation. No periods, no commas, no question marks. Those would later get added to papyrus and codices by uh, Romans and medieval scribes. There were no lowercase letters either. There were not even spaces between words. So it was all like one long run-on capitalized word. It would be pretty hard to read in your head, but it would be a little easier to do what? Read it out loud. But it's interesting, because you might be like, what's the point of learning grammar? What's the point of learning punctuation and capitalizations? It makes it much easier to understand the writing when we use that sort of thing. Imagine writing for a teacher in all capitalized, no space, no punctuation, sentence or essay. Do you think you'd get a very good grade? Probably not. 
All right, good. Let's read this together. I'm going to read it out loud, loud and proud. Welcome back. And then I'm going to tell you what it means. And then I'm going to let you get to studying for tomorrow. Sing, goddess. The anger of Peleus' son Achilles and its devastation, which put pains thousandfold upon the Achaeans, hurled in their multitudes to the house of Hades, strong souls of heroes, but gave their bodies to be the delicate feasting of dogs of all birds, and the will of Zeus was accomplished. Since that time, when first there stood in the vision of conflict, Atreus' son, the lord of men and brilliant Achilles. All right, several things I want us to do. Let's all take out a pencil very quickly, please. First thing I want you to do is to underline the very first word of this poem. Sing, goddess. This helps you to understand that this was originally sung. Second thing I want you to do is circle goddess. The idea here is that a muse, her name is Calliope, she is the muse of epic poetry, will come down from Olympus, or heaven, and sing through the poet. It's as if he is himself a spiritual medium for someone who will sing through him. Interesting. Uh, I want you to put a box around the word anger. The word anger in the Greek is actually the very first work of, or the very first word of the poem. So the very first work, or word, excuse me, I can't believe I keep saying word, the very first word in all of Western literature is anger. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. It's like everything happens because of anger, because anger causes conflicts, and when conflicts happen, new things happen, often bad things. You'll see that actually we begin this year with anger, and at the end of it with the Aeneid, we'll will uh, also end with anger. It's like it's, it's like it never goes away. All right, next thing we're looking at. Peleus' son, Achilles. He's your main character. He's your protagonist. He is a son of goddess Thetis and of also Peleus. You all know that from the story we just learned. Well, looks like devastation, pains thousandfold, are going to come to his own side, the Achaeans. Those are the Greeks. They're going to be hurled in multitudes, multitudes to the house of Hades. House of Hades, that's the underworld. That's the afterlife. That means lots of people are going to die because of the anger of Achilles. Lots of people on his own side are going to die because of his anger. I would expect to see that if a warrior gets angry, who ends up dying because of that? His allies or his enemies? And so it looks like his anger is going to be directed towards his enemies or towards one of his own allies. Towards one of his own allies. Unfortunately. But gave their bodies to be the delicate feasting of dogs of all birds. Technically, nobody will be eaten by a dog or a bird during this, time, uh, during this poem. Though that would have been a terrible thing for an ancient Greek. Supposedly, you cannot enter the afterlife if your body is eaten, if you do not cross the river Styx. Often, you would need two, uh, I think, silver pieces. I don't know what the currency was called exactly at that time. There was no currency at that time. They would actually give uh, gold and talents. Talents are 50 to 70 pounds of gold. 50 to 70 pounds of gold. So I'm not sure whether that's a later convention. That's certainly something we'll see in the Aeneid. In any case, and the will of Zeus was accomplished since that time when first there stood in division of conflict, Atreus' son, the lord of men. I want you to write underneath that, Agamemnon. I'll write that name for you, because you probably don't know how to spell it. The Lord of Men, Atreus' son.
This is called circumlocution, which the poet is using. He's speaking around what it is he's saying without directly saying it. So he says, Atreus' son, the lord of men. Well, that's Agamemnon. Agamemnon, as we know from earlier, is the head of the Achaean war effort. Achilleus is the best fighter on the Achaean war effort. You probably want them to be on the same what together? Side. Same page. Well, it looks like when your top commander and your top fighter come into conflict over something, it leads to a lot of death for all the people around you. And, well, surprise, surprise, can you guess what it is that they come into conflict over? It's the same thing that the entire Trojan War was caused by. It's caused by a conflict over a what? Over a lady. Over a woman. Right. It's a slightly different situation, but it's also very much similar, too. And when we see Achilleus in Book 9, he will talk quite a bit to us um, about how he sees the situation in similar light. Uh, what happened to Menelaus. Alright, I just wanted to read those few lines with you to give you a head start, a jump start on what it is you're reading. You're reading a book that is set in the tenth year of a ten year long war. There's going to be a conflict between the top warrior, Achilleus, and the top commander, Agamemnon. The conflict is going to involve a lady. Just like the conflict that started the war itself. It's like there will be a war within the war. Well, what comes next, we'll talk about soon.